Welcome to the Women in Public Policy Program Seminar Series Podcast at the Harvard Kennedy School. We have the pleasure of being here today with one of our fellows, Kiera Hudson. Kiera is going to present work on the influence of sexual orientation and race on gender prescriptive stereotypes. Kiera received her BA in Biology and Psychology from Williams College and is currently pursuing a PhD in Social Psychology under the guidance of Dr. James Sedanius and Mazarin Banaji. In the Sedanius lab, Kira is interested in the biological underpinnings of social dominance by exploring the relationship between social dominance orientation and testosterone levels. In a separate line of work, Kira is examining how racial and gender hierarchies intersect as it relates to experiencing prejudice. In the Banaji lab, she's looking at the origins of social hierarchical perception by asking when and how children come to represent social categories of race, gender, and religion as social dominance hierarchies. Thank you all for listening in today on our private recording podcast, and I'm going to turn it over to Kira, who will take it away. Awesome. Thank you so much. Um, so. Thank you everyone for listening rather than coming. And I'm excited to discuss a topic uh, with you that is near and dear to my heart, which is navigating the intersectional world of psychology. So just as a caveat, you are likely to uh, leave with more questions than you came in, which is perfectly fine because that's the headspace I usually occupy when discussing this work. And so uh, I'm really curious to hear what new questions this work sparks for everyone because the whole point of this project is to be generative as it relates to new research and new hypotheses in the uh, intersectional space. Okay, so we can get started. So, although our society is beginning to narrow gender gaps in male-dominated fields, gender stereotypes persist in society. And for decades, psychologists have studied the sticky nature of gender stereotypes that presume women are warm and emotional while men are dominant and competitive. Gender stereotypes are powerful forces that shape the collective experiences of what is right for men and women to do, say, and be, and these norms become socialized from an early age. So gender stereotypes are more than just descriptive or simply describing men and women's actual behaviors. They're also prescriptive, and they set norms for what men and women should and should not do. So let's take the association between men and competitive. We can ask about that association descriptively. So asking, are men competitive? This is looking at the behaviors that men and women do and evaluating them um, and saying, is this competitive or is this not? But we can also ask about the link between uh, maleness and competitiveness from a prescriptive lens. And that's uh, by asking, should men be competitive? So now regardless of what men and women actually do, we're asking whether or not this should be the case. And as you can tell, this adds almost a normative or a moral aspect to gender stereotypes. And as we'll talk about in just a moment, these prescriptive stereotypes are usually the culprit for gender backlash. So role congruity theory explains why prescriptive stereotypes are the source of gender backlash and discrimination. Role congruity theory uh, posits that the negative evaluations and discrimination of men and women in domains are based in expectancy violations when the role that they are in is incongruent with the stereotypes of their gender. So these negative evaluations stem from both descriptive and prescriptive stereotypes. So let's, take about, let's think about descriptive stereotypes. So it is the idea that women are not considered leaders. And so when people are thinking about who should be the next leader or who should be um, a CEO, women are uh, viewed less favorably, for example, as good candidates because of these descriptive expectations. 
However, if gender discrimination was just about descriptive stereotypes, then once a woman said or shows that, hey, I'm really competent, I can do this, then it should be fine. So people had negative expectations of her, but once she shows that she's competent, um, everything should be good, but that's not true because she runs into prescriptive violations. So if a woman can show that she possesses the traits deemed necessary for a leadership role, she now faces backlash because she's violating the idea that women should be communal and not agentic. And so women are derogated from the same successes that men are praised for. And this negative evaluation really only occurs in male domains. And so women who are not caring and nice to subordinates do receive lower performance evaluations as managers than men who engage in the same behaviors. I'm sure none of this is a surprise to anyone. <laughs> um, but this effect is not just for women. So men who display modesty and not competitiveness or confidence also suffer backlash. Although role congruity theory has sparked an abundance of research in psychology and in related domains, and seems to explain many of the barriers women face in becoming equally represented in male uh, domains, there are some potential problems. Implicit in these theories that explain the consequences of men and women's prescriptive violations is a normative view of who these men and women are. So previous work on prescriptive stereotypes use labels like women and men, and they assume that these labels are activating general representations of these categories and rather than prototypical ones. So let me give you an example. So please imagine a person. If you sit here and you imagine a person, it is likely that you went beyond imagining a blob with 10 fingers and 10 toes. You probably had to imagine other social identities or other social categories to get a fuller picture of this person. And so if you are an American, it is likely that there are a few biases that you were subjected to to create this picture of a person. These biases include Eurocentrism, uh, androcentrism, heterocentrism, and uh, I'm going to call middle class centrism, this idea that there are prototypes for each of these identities that we probably added onto this person. So in an American context, it is likely that if we think about men and women, that these men and women are white and straight. And so because studies that uh, examine gender stereotypes and gender role violations very rarely specify the sexual orientations and race of their intended targets, it's likely that these are not general representations but prototypical ones. And so what this suggests is that prescriptive stereotypes of women likely don't encompass lesbian women or women of color. And so although the expectations of straight women and white women might generalize to other subcategories of race and sexual orientation, there's reason to suspect that the intersectional categories of race and gender or gender and sexual orientation will be unique. And this is what scholars call intersectionality or the interconnected nature of social identities such as race, gender, and class as they apply to a given individual or group, creating overlapping and interdependent systems of discrimination or disadvantage. Much of the work to date, uh, at least in psychology, I can only uh, talk about psychology, has not necessarily taken intersectionality into account. So for example, as of 10 years ago, the bulk of the studies on race and gender really focus on singular identities. So less than 20% of studies on race included women, and less than 10% of the studies on gender included race. So this tells us, it seems like we know a lot about how women are perceived, but we really know how white women are perceived. We know a lot about how black people are perceived, but really only about black men. And the fact that I couldn't find a more recent publication that quantifies the state of the intersectional research in psychology to me is exhibit A of the problem. 
And so in the case of gender prescriptor stereotypes, social identity outside of gender have their own stereotypes and traits that should interact with gendered ones. So for example, we can ask, is it desirable for a black man to be assertive because men are are supposed to be assertive, or maybe it's undesirable because assertiveness from black individuals can be threatening. What about lesbian women? Are they held to the same standard as it relates to warmth? So you can imagine that they are because they're women, or maybe not because we assume an overlap between masculinity and lesbianism um, for lesbian women. And so if the stereotypes for intersectional groups are unique from those of the majority group, are theories like role congruity theory still adequate to explain backlash? And if not, how should it be changed to be more inclusive? Um, in another way, we can think of, well, if these groups do face backlash, then what explains it if role congruity theory doesn't? And so exploring questions like this is the purpose of my work and the focus of this presentation, which is to outline an unfiltered view of the landscape of gender prescriptive stereotypes for intersectional targets by sexual orientation in study one and race in study two. So I do not claim to know exactly how these theories should be adjusted, but to me the results suggest that some adjustment needs to be made in order to more accurately understand what's going on with gender discrimination. Okay. So, Study one, like I said, uh, looked at sexual orientation. And so what might inform our expectations of how sexual orientation changes gender stereotypes? So a simple hypothesis is that women are women and men are men, regardless of their other social identities. And these social identities don't influence how uh, gender, uh, the gender dynamics to a large degree. So I would say this might be the tacit assumption in a lot of gendered work that if we just focus on women that we capture all women. However, I would say there is a literature on descriptive stereotypes of gay men and lesbian women, which all highlight that we hold an implicit gender inversion assumption, or the idea that gay men and straight women are presumed to be similar, and lesbian women and straight men are presumed to be similar because they share the same sexual preferences. And so there are some studies on stereotypes by sexual orientation, but they do not examine prescriptive stereotypes, only descriptive. And as we discussed before, descriptive stereotypes are usually the source of the gender backlash that you know is a really big problem um, in terms of gender discrimination. And thus we should also study prescriptive stereotypes in um, conjunction with descriptive ones. And furthermore, although it seems like the descriptive and the prescriptive stereotypes for men and women are roughly the same, we shouldn't assume that we're gonna find that same equivalence for intersectional targets. And that's another reason why we should study prescriptive stereotypes. Then finally, other studies usually collapse stereotypes into broad categories of masculinity and femininity, which doesn't allow for a more nuanced understanding of gender stereotypes. So in the following study, I asked individuals to indicate their prescriptive norms about straight and gay men and women. So in the study, participants viewed a trait, uh, excuse me, a list of 70 traits, including stereotypically male, female, and neutral traits. And so if you are a participant in the study, you sat with this list <laughs> for about 15 seconds. And so I included um, neutral traits because I didn't want to assume that the traits that would matter for men and women would also, you know, show gender differences or not show gender differences between gay men and lesbian women. So after participants reviewed the traits, they completed three rating tasks in which they indicated how desirable it was for a target man, woman, and person to display each trait. So it's important to remember that everyone answered 
three rating tasks. So everyone got a man, everyone got a woman, everyone got a person. And so the phrase desirable is used to operationalize prescriptive stereotypes. If I was interested in descriptive stereotypes, I would have asked about typicality. So how typical is it in American society? Okay, so target sex was within subjects. So all participants rated a man, a woman, and a person. The sexual orientation of the target varied between subjects. So some participants answered these questions with no labels, which replicate previous studies of just using labels like men and women, while others answered desirability questions for straight men, straight women, straight person, or gay targets. So a gay man, a lesbian woman, and a homosexual person. It's really hard to come up with a gender neutral term for sexual orientation, so homosexual is the best I could do because I think a gay person evokes man, and that was not the whole point of the study. <laughs> um, okay. So in case you are wondering how I analyze the data, this is a repeated measures design because all participants answered um, for the 70 traits three times for three different targets. And so I entered in the three-way interaction between trait, target, sex, and sexual orientation in the same model, all predicting desirability ratings. There was a participant random intercept, and I controlled for the two-way interactions a participant gender, which was centered, with trait uh, target sex and sexual orientation. So this model was built hierarchically. So at each step, I made sure that the model was a better fit because it was more complicated and that was true. And the final model explained about 52% of the variance in the data. So it seems to be a pretty good model to sort of understand um, what's going on in terms of these gender prescriptive stereotypes. And so it's important to note that the comparisons of interest are the differences between targets within a trait. So I'm not interested in whether or not the desirability for a straight man in terms of being warm versus being confident are different or the same. I'm interested within warmth, how does sexual orientation and gender impact the desirability ratings? Okay, so I am essentially taking a qualitative approach to quantitative data. So I get a lot of questions of why didn't you do a factor analysis? And so the first reason I didn't do a factor analysis is that it's almost impossible to do because all of my traits are going in different directions. So I'd either have to do a factor analysis for each individual intersectional target. So a factor analysis for the gay male target and then for the lesbian woman target and then just for the woman target because again these are going in different directions. And to me that's not the purpose of this exercise. So and I also want to show you know, for all of these traits, because there might be some really interesting patterns that go beyond just feminine and masculine, for example. And uh, also, it's sort of in that vein of saying, what are the stereotypes? I'm really interested in patterns within the data. And so I'm going to talk about what are the patterns that I expected. So unfortunately, I did expect to uh, show or for there to be stability in gender stereotypes. So I know maybe this is me being a pessimist, but I didn't expect um, too much change from when Prentice and Carranza explored prescriptive stereotypes in 2002. I also expected evidence of heterocentrism, so the idea that the default person is assumed straight. And so I sh I'll talk about how um, what I expected to see in terms of um, that pattern. And then finally, I don't know what we'll find for the interaction between gender and sexual orientation, but given that there's some work sh on descriptive stereotypes showing gender inversion, it just makes sense that that's a good hypothesis for prescriptive stereotypes. Okay, so what do we see? So uh, the first thing is we do see stability in gender stereotypes. So by stability, I mean that the gender differences that 
were found in 2002 in terms of what traits show gender differences and what direction that they show gender differences, I find the exact same thing. So Prentice and Carranza started with 100 traits and found 72 that showed gender differences. I started with 70 and found 57. And the all the traits that I found gender differences on, they also found gender differences on. Uh, more interestingly, the magnitude of the differences still remained constant. So uh, I'm just going to, I just plucked um, a few traits that might be relevant to this uh, community. So the idea that, you know, in 2002, in terms of business sense, men were rated, uh, it was an 8.3 on desirability compared to a 6.607 for women. That uh, gap, for the most part, I replicate myself in 2017. So when I say there's stability in gender stereotypes, there seems to be not only the exact same traits show gender differences, but also the magnitude of the differences really uh, don't seem to have changed very much. Okay. So what about uh, heterocentrism? So the I expected that the ratings for man, woman, and person should be pretty much the same as straight man, straight woman, straight person. So if people, when they were thinking of a man, a woman, a person in these previous studies, that they were likely thinking of a straight person, if the desirability ratings for these two targets are exactly the same, that gives support for this idea that that's exactly what was happening. When people were evoking representations of man, a person, or a woman, they were evoking straight individuals. And so that's exactly what we find, that there is no trait for which man deviates from straight man, woman deviates from straight woman, and person deviates from straight person. And so uh, this is not surprising, although there are very few studies that directly demonstrate heteronormativity in um, our judgments. So I thought this was maybe sad, but pretty cool. Okay, so uh, finally, probably what I should click my bad. Um, so finally, uh, I expected gender inversion. So I'm going to show you a series of graphs that look like this one. And so I want to orient you to the graph so that you uh, have a sense of what's going on. So target sex is on the x-axis and sexual orientation is indicated by the color. I did, I was a little stereotypical in that uh, control is black. So the man, the woman, and the person targets are in black and the gay targets are pink and the straight targets are blue. And so there will always be a line that indicates the midpoint of the scale, which if you remember, the scale is from one to nine, so the midpoint is five, and the y-axis indicates trait desirability. And so when I talk about what is significantly different in this study, I should have mentioned this earlier, I'm using the confidence intervals. So if the confidence intervals of two estimates do not overlap, then the two estimates are different from one another. And I use the confidence intervals for two reasons. One, they're really easy to use. Um, but secondly, that meant that I didn't have to do a ton of post hoc t-tests and ANOVAs to sort of dictate um, confidence. So all of my you know, analyses are from one model, which doesn't completely get rid of type one like error concerns, but it does a pretty good job. And furthermore, there are, um, well, excuse me, 95% uh, confidence intervals can overlap up to 25% and things still be significant at the 0.05 level. And so there are traits that show differences um, at the P equals 0.001 level and their confidence intervals still overlap. So I'm saying that those are not significantly different. So in many ways, this is a conservative test of this hypothesis, but in general, I'm still interested in the patterns anyway. So I still think that there's some useful things to be found. Okay, great. So what would gender inversion look like? Gender inversion should look something like this. 
And so notice how there's two um, aspects of gender inversion. The first one is that if we assume that gay men and straight women are the same, the desirability ratings for gay men and straight women should be roughly at the same level. And as you can see, if you look in the man column, the pink dot um, is pretty much at the same level for the blue dot for um, straight women. And you can see that that pattern is reversed for straight men and lesbian women. So that's one aspect of gender inversion. But the second aspect is that the gender differences that you see for one sexual orientation should be mirrored in the other. So as you can see here, it is more desirable for a straight man on this given trait. Uh, it is more desirable for a straight man to exhibit it compared to a straight woman. If gender inversion were occurring, we would expect that pattern to be reversed for the gay targets, such that it's now more desirable for the woman, so a lesbian woman, to do this trait compared to a gay man. So how often do we see gender inversion? So for nine traits, we see evidence of gender inversion. So if we look at this trait, this is for uh, being assertive. As you can see here, it is less desirable for a straight woman to be assertive compared to straight men. So that's looking at the blue dots. Um, but if you look at the pink dots, it is more desirable for a lesbian woman to be assertive compared to a gay man. This is not complete inversion because as you can see here, although lesbian women show, excuse me, although lesbian women, it's more desirable for a lesbian woman to be assertive compared to a straight woman, lesbian women do not show the same level of desirability as a straight man. And so the only trait that shows complete gender inversion was approval seeking. And here you can see that perfect X that you would expect for gender inversion. So many of the traits uh, that show gender inversion are themselves very gendered, like competitive, emotional, or aggressive. And so that's not, um, that might be why we see uh, complete gender inversion on these traits. And so, yeah, that's all I was gonna say there. Okay, for an additional 12 traits uh, show a pattern that I'm calling gender asymmetry, in which the desirability ratings for either the man or the woman target are the same for all sexual orientations, but diverge for the opposite gender. So this is still gender inversion, um, but I think this pattern is interesting because the normative pressure is on one gender. So for clean, you can see here that the desirability of being clean is the same for men of all sexual orientations, but diverge for women, such that lesbian women face less pressure to be clean than straight women. Now, of course, this is still desirable. Being clean is desirable. It's above the, the midpoint. But I do think it's fascinating that lesbian women don't show as much of a normative pressure, whereas straight women and women do show an intensified pressure to be clean. And so theatrical and athletic were the only traits where the pressure was on the man rather than the woman. And I wanna pause here because I think the pattern of results for um, athleticism is really fascinating. Because when I think of a stereotypical gay man, he tends to be very fit, you know, he tends to be roughly athletic. But here you can see that uh, descriptive stereotypes don't always match prescriptive ones. Because if we would have expected that the stereotype of gay men of being athletic and fit to uh, manifest in prescriptive stereotypes, we would expect that gay men should be uh, relatively high in terms of desirability. And that's not what we see here. They're almost at the midpoint, um, suggesting that uh, people just are not particularly inclined to see gay men as athletic. So in the intro, I had asked whether lesbian women should be kind. I can answer that question. So yes, lesbian women should be kind because they're above the midpoint of the scale, but it seems like it might be acceptable if they're not as kind as straight women. So will lesbian managers receive backlash if they are not kind to their subordinates? This graph suggests that they will not, 
And then, you know, leads to the next question of, well, if lesbian women do face backlash, what is the source of it? Okay. So next, a full 34 traits show a pattern that I'm calling sexual orientation asymmetry, such that there's a clear change in desirability going from straight men to a straight woman or vice versa, but there's no difference for gay men and lesbian women. So in other words, there's gender differentiation for straight but not gay targets. And this represents the bulk of the traits. So this is 34 traits. And the fact that so many traits show this pattern implies, at least to me, although gay men might be perceived as straight women and lesbian women might be perceived like straight men in some cases, there's less gender differences between gay men and lesbian women than there is between straight men and women. And so to me, this suggests that gender might not matter as much as sexual orientation in terms of how we view these targets. And so there's two additional points I want to mention. So the first one is I find it really interesting that although it's more desirable for lesbians to be assertive, competitive, and forceful than straight women, there's no differences in desirability for traits like business sense, being career-oriented, or leadership ability. I think this is leadership ability. So this suggests to me that although it might be acceptable for lesbian women to display dominance from maybe like a personality point of view, it is not acceptable for them to display dominance in a way that might disturb the gender status quo. So this again complicates role congruity theory as it splits up now dominance or agency into maybe dominance and competence. And that's not something that you know we talk about very frequently, but that split might be really important in terms of understanding the source of backlash for different targets. Targets. And then secondly, as you might have noticed from, um, from the graphs, for many of the traits, the differences between straight and gay men are much larger than the differences between straight and lesbian women. So to me, this suggests that by being gay, gay men lose status afforded to men, while lesbian women do not gain much status um, from being a lesbian. And so this idea that gay is to be decidedly low status, I think is borne out in traits that don't show any gender differentiation in any group. Instead, what you just find is a main effect of sexual orientation, such that it's less desirable for gay men and lesbian women to be loyal or dependent or honest. Traits that I would say are just good for anyone to display. Okay, so what are some takeaways from study one? The first takeaway is that our control condition was indistinguishable from the straight condition, highlighting the fact that scholarship on gender is likely about straight individuals. And if we want to be more inclusive, that we need to explicitly be more inclusive and add in um, uh, scholarship on gay and lesbian individuals. And then I also found evidence for gender inversion. So it's not that there wasn't any evidence of gender inversion theory, because there were, uh, let's see what I want to say. Yes, so we do find some evidence of gender inversion theory. However, it seems like sexual orientation is the dominant identity in forming uh, gay gender stereotypes. So I found um, 57 of the traits that showed differences for the generic man and woman, only 21 of those traits showed gender inversion. So gender inversion uh, might be a thing, but it suggests that we can't simply take what we know about men and women and sort of apply it to lesbians or vice versa. And the fact that uh, the bulk of the traits didn't show gender differences suggests that being gay has a stronger impact on what it's deemed acceptable than gender. So again, what does this mean for role congruity theory? And then finally, we consistently saw gay men and lesbian women uh, showing similar prescriptive stereotypes as straight women, indicating that status might play an important role in the formation of prescriptive stereotypes. Okay, so that was study one.
Um, and then, so study one gave me a lot to think about in terms of the relationship between sexual orientation and gender. And so in study two, I was curious about race. And so uh, study two showed or used the exact same paradigm, but instead of sexual orientation, we looked at race. And so work on descriptive stereotypes on race do show that stereotypes of men and women by different races are not the same. And so let's go back to that backlash effect where women, especially in the workplace, are penalized for displaying agentic behavior because they're violating prescriptive norms. All women are likely not punished in the same way. So if we look at stereotypes, although white women are seen as submissive and feminine, giving credence to the idea that women are not supposed to be dominant, black women are assertive and aggressive and specifically not feminine. Um, so uh, even more interestingly, this pattern reverses for men, with white men holding traditional stereotypes of men as leaders, but black men not having uh, stereotypes related to dominance outside of being dangerous, which I would say is qualitatively different. Um, so this suggests that you know, even on a, on a descriptive level, these stereotypes are differing. So it's likely on a prescriptive level that they're differing too. And so what can we expect to see at the intersection of race and gender on gender prescriptive stereotypes? So uh, based on stereotypes, there is a theory that might explain what's going on. And this theory is called the gendered race theory. So this is the idea that races have genders associated with them. And so when you think about the stereotypes of African-Americans as a whole, they tend to be very masculine. And so it's the idea that to be black is to be masculine. And this fits in with you know stereotypes of black people being tough or angry or dangerous and tropes that we also associate with masculinity. So that's what I would have expected for descriptive stereotypes. Okay. So study two was run the ex uh, exactly like study one. So participants, again, reviewed the same list of traits and indicated the desirability of a man, a woman, and a person displaying these characteristics. Instead of sexual orientation varying between participants, race varied between participants. So some participants answered these questions with no labels, again, replicating previous studies, while others answered desirability questions for white, black, Asian, Latino, and Middle Eastern targets. I included all these different um, racial groups because the bulk of the work on gender and race tend to focus on African-Americans. But of course, for the sake of time, I'm only gonna discuss the results um, from the black, white, and control conditions. But I do have uh, data from all six groups. Okay, so data was analyzed the exact same way as study one uh, regarding the hierarchical model with a three-way interaction. But instead of target sexual orientation, now it's target race. And so the final model predicted about 48% of the variance here. So for the sake of time, I'm not going to discuss the first two patterns of data that I expected, which was, again, stability and gender stereotypes, but now evidence of Eurocentrism rather than heterocentrism. You can take my word for it. There is evidence of Eurocentrism. Um, <laughs> but we're just going to focus on the interaction between race and gender on these gender prescriptive stereotypes. And so let's look at what it might mean for uh, the gendered race theory to be borne out. So the easiest way of examining the gendered race theory is just by looking at the desirability ratings for the traits feminine and masculine. And so if uh, to be black is to be masculine, we should expect that uh, both for the for, both for black men and black women, there should be a higher desirability for them to be masculine. Um, and we might find the reverse with feminine. And so 
to be masculine, to be feminine, you know, can be separate, separated. But um, if the gendered race theory has some merit in the prescriptive world, we should see um, increased desirability of masculinity for black men and black women and decreased desirability of femininity for black men and black women. So what do we see? For, uh, so this is the desirability of being masculine. And you can see here uh, for black male targets, so they are the brown dots and uh, the white targets are the gray dots and the control condition again is in black. I should have specified that before. Um, but for black male targets, it is less desirable for them to be masculine and, slight, uh, and slightly more desirable for them to be feminine compared to the compared to white men. And for black women, we find the reverse. So it's less desirable for them to be feminine and slightly more mask or more desirable for them to be masculine compared to white women. And so although this in some ways is um, evidence for the gendered race theory such that uh, black women are not as feminine compared to white women, I would say that this is less about the gendered race theory and perhaps more about the fact that black women and, and black men are denied some level of their gender because these graphs are mirror images of each other. So black men are not are supposed to be very masculine and black women are not supposed to be very feminine. And so uh, although this, again, is in line with the gendered race theory, I would say that this is a little bit about prototypicality and that our understanding of what it me means to be a man and what it means to be a woman is much more tied to the prototype of a group which in America is white compared to black. Okay. So overwhelmingly, the data for um, black targets show race asymmetry or this idea that there's no gender differentiation amongst black targets, but significant gender differences amongst white targets. This is true for uh, 38 traits, suggesting again that gender might not be as important for viewing non-prototypical groups. And furthermore, the trend that you see here where black men are more similar to white women than they are to white men is a recurring one. So just like with sexual orientation, men show the largest differences amongst race and that the ethnic minority man is always lower in desirability compared to the white man. So I can't answer the question of whether or not black men should be assertive. The answer to that is yes, because they're above the midpoint, but it's much less desirable <coughs> excuse me, for a black man to be assertive compared to a white man. Okay. So the two traits that showed gender differences amongst blacks were athleticism and childlike. And even here, uh, I want to bring back the idea that descriptive and prescriptive stereotypes are not the same, because one of the strongest descriptive stereotypes of African Americans are that they are athletic. And so if it was the case that athleticism was a desired trait in African Americans, we should see that the black dot for, or excuse me, the brown dot for men should be much higher than it is for white targets, but that's not true. Although there's no differences, the trend is that it is less desirable for black men to be athletic compared to um, men and white men. And we see the reverse for women. And so to me what that uh, is suggesting is that black women what we understand for black women might be qualitatively different than what we understand for black men. Again, suggesting that intersectionality is important. Okay, so the, in taking both of these studies together as a whole, I would say that 
uh, it is clear that gender prescriptive stereotypes do show evidence of prototypicality bias. So Eurocentrism and heterocentrism, I didn't talk about this in this talk, but there's also evidence of androcentrism. So looking at which gender was uh, more similar to the generic person, it was true that for every single category, the male target was more similar to the person. So there are a lot of these biases in how we understand these stereotypes. And if we want to be more inclusive, we need to be more explicit about incorporating groups that aren't likely to come to mind um, sort of automatically. And this work also suggests that a lot of the theories that we have on descriptive stereotypes just might not be as applicable to prescriptive stereotypes. That descriptive and prescriptive, although they seem very similar for these generic male woman targets, might not be true for other um, intersectional categories. And then finally, there seems to be some sort of status story going on that gender prescriptive stereotypes might be particularly influenced by status for non-prototypical targets. And so we should investigate that more as we um, investigate gender discrimination. Okay. And so uh, in closing, intersectionality matters. Intersectionality is, a crucial, is crucial to a complete understanding of our experiences in the world, both privileged and disadvantaged ones. And so I encourage everyone to think about the theories and practices that you currently engage in and investigate whether or not there are hidden assumptions and biases that inadvertently are built into those theories and practices that might limit the scope of who these theories apply to. And with that, I leave you with a quote from Audre Lorde. Um, there is no such thing as a single issue struggle because we do not live single issue lives. And I will take questions via email. Thank you. Kira, thank you sincerely for sharing your research with us. And thank you to all of our listeners for joining us. Please stay tuned throughout the academic year for more research insights from the Women in Public Policy program here at the Kennedy School. Thank you very much.